You are listening to the teaching ministries of Southwest Church, located in the heart of Springboro, Ohio, at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. Well, today we're continuing our examination of the adventures of Christmas. Now, throughout this series of messages, we've been looking at real-life themes that we can observe and learn from the Christmas story. Our first week, if you were here a couple weeks ago, we looked at the importance of having healthy, realistic, uh, faithful expectations. And last week, we examined the importance of not simply going through the motions of the holidays and in the busyness of travel and even meeting with families for tradition, uh, that we miss the real meaning of Christmas. This week, we're going to examine some important themes that are embedded within the Christmas story that will help us strengthen family relationships and possibly learn some important reminders to help heal and reconcile strained relationships. We've entitled this weekend's message, Grandma's House. Now, the title seems very relevant to me. As last weekend, our family celebrated my mom's 90th birthday. We don't only uh, describe visiting my mom as visiting grandma's house these days. We now describe it as visiting great-grandma's house, okay? So here she is with... Uh, two of her uh, great-grandchildren. These are her great-grandsons. And, um, and uh, here she is with my two granddaughters, her great-granddaughters. And so, um, and then here is the entire family, okay? And I don't know if you can tell, but uh, that's, maybe you can't see that real close up, but, well, I guess you can on that one. Um, but I'm the youngest of her three kids. You probably can pick that out. And although I'm not the youngest of the clan of 20, soon to be 21, she still calls me her baby, okay? And um, I used to hate that, but I kind of like it now, okay? Now, although we might clean up pretty good for this photo, it's important that I don't give you a false impression that we are a perfect family. Trust me, we aren't. We have our challenges. We continue to face challenges as we, as a group of imperfect people, represent now four different generations. We have a wide variety of personalities and life experiences. And the ongoing challenge is to come together as a family, loving and accepting one another, even though at times we see in, the, in our interactions with each other that we have different opinions, we have even at times different values, and as we've had people marry into the family, even different beliefs. We also have had in the past and still in the present, we've experienced some conflicts. We've had hurt feelings. We've had strained relationships at times, and at times unspoken grievances that you can almost feel underneath the surface. Can you relate to those? Maybe you've experienced some of those same things in your family. Probably you can relate to that, and possibly you've had such intense conflicts in your family, maybe growing up or maybe even in recent years, that you can't even imagine coming together for a family 
photo. If that's the case for you, then I want to invite you to join me as we look at the Christmas story with fresh eyes today, looking for things that we can learn from some of the key players in the Christmas story of how we can strengthen and maybe in some situations restore and reconcile family relationships. So let's jump right in and let's begin with the adopted dad of Jesus, the guy we know as Joseph. I love to talk about Joseph because he's often the forgotten character in the Christmas story. Interestingly enough, there's only, of the four Gospels that describe the life of Jesus, there's only two of them that tell the birth narratives, okay? It's Matthew and Luke. And it's interesting that Luke tends to tell this Christmas story from the perspective of Mary. But Matthew, interestingly enough, tells the story and gives us a glimpse into the story through Joseph's perspective. So let's jump right in and read about Matthew's telling of the Christmas story, beginning in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. We read these words. This is how Jesus, the Messiah, was born. His mother Mary was engaged and to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, as we're introduced to this character, Joseph, Matthew reminds us that this Christmas story is truly a miraculous story. You see, as a church, we state emphatically that we believe that this description is true, that Mary was a virgin. She was a young woman, probably an adolescent woman. She'd never been with a man, and yet in a miraculous way, she is expecting to give birth to God's Son, Jesus Christ. Personally, I believe that this story is true. I I believe it with all my heart, although I can't explain how God intervened in this miraculous way. it's, It's not explainable, and yet I believe it to be true. It truly is a miracle. Do you believe it to be true? As we remember the the miracle of Christmas, let's remember it takes place in the context of a specific family. And possibly that's a good reminder for us this weekend that God works miraculously in the family context. I long for that. Do you believe that God can work miraculously within your family to bring healing of hurts, to bring reconciliation of relationships that are broken, and to ease the strain that is there, maybe that you can feel even when families meet together? I continue to hold out hope of God working miraculously in my family and in my extended family of some relationships that that need to be healed. And if you have a relationship in your family that that maybe you've been praying about, or maybe it's been so strained that you've not even had the confidence to, to begin to pray that God would bring healing, then I want to invite you this Christmas to begin to pray and ask the God who does miracles 
to do a miracle in your family. And if you would like for me to join you in praying about that, please let me know. You can email me, you can put it on the communication card, and I'd love to join you in praying for God to work miraculously in your family. Let's see what we can learn from Joseph's character as we continue to read, picking up in verse 19. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child, she will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife, but he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born, and Joseph named him Jesus. What do you see in this amazing guy named Joseph? I see a humble guy who is described as a righteous man. I think sometimes we can get intimidated by some of these biblical words that we don't use in our everyday language, words like righteous. I'm always looking for just the simplest definition of some of these words. And I'd like to just share with you this real simple definition of righteous this weekend. It simply means that as the Bible describes Joseph as righteous, that he was right with God. And he was seeking to do that which was right before God, and he was seeking to do that which was right toward others. And we see great evidence of that in this description of Joseph. First of all, when he hears of Mary's pregnancy, before God intervenes through this dream, he he naturally assumes what any of us would have assumed, that Mary had been unfaithful to him. You see, he knew that he had not been with her in a sexual way, so he assumed that she had been unfaithful. And in that culture and under Jewish law, someone who was unfaithful during the engagement period, or they actually called it a betrothal period, was viewed as committing adultery. And in fact, by Jewish law, that person could be executed by stoning. Now, if Joseph would have wanted to demand his honor upheld, Joseph would have had charges filed against Mary, even to the point of maybe seeking her execution. But even prior to the angelic visit with, with this, within this dream, Joseph decides to do the loving thing toward Mary. Even while he's still assuming that she's been in the wrong, he still chooses to say, I want to do the loving thing toward Mary and privately divorce her. I don't know about you, but I think that's impressive. 
Now, following the angelic message, Joseph not only doesn't divorce her, but he obeyed God and does the noble thing of marrying her and agrees to adopt Jesus, treating him as his own son. Yet at the same time, always remembering that he was simply a guardian to someone else's son. What kind of stepdad or adopted dad do you think Joseph was? The Bible doesn't really give us a lot of details. In fact, we, we only hear of Joseph again after the birth narrative when, when Jesus is 12 years old and he goes to the temple and amazes the, the teachers of the law of his day. In fact, by the time Jesus begins his ministry, we don't hear anything about Joseph except kind of just that Jesus was known as the son of Joseph. Most scholars believe that Joseph had died somewhere between the age of 12 and 30 of Jesus' life. So we don't know a lot about him, but I just have to think that Joseph was a fantastic adopted dad. If for no other reason, Joseph was the one that God picked to adopt his son. Secondly, now think about this. Joseph never had to discipline a sinful attitude or sinful behavior in Jesus. That would make parenting a little easier, wouldn't it? You see, I just think that Joseph was a great adopted dad. Parents, I wonder, I wonder if we would have a healthier perspective in our our own parenting if we viewed ourselves as simply temporary guardians of a precious child of God. You see, sometimes when our kids are young, we we get lulled into this deceptive thinking that we can control their lives. Just wait till they get a little older. You find that that's not the case. And then if you're like me and your children are grown and they've left the home, you realize you have them for such a short time. And I think we would be better parents if we really understood that, that we're simply guardians for a short time. And that our, our role is to simply protect them and guide them and point them to their heavenly Father so that they will learn to trust Him the rest of their life. Finally, we see in Joseph's example that he was willing to be obedient to the difficult call of of being married to Mary and yet not claiming his marital rights until after the baby was born. How many men would be willing to show that kind of patience, that kind of self-control, that kind of obedience? By the way, this passage is in no way a a statement about human sexuality because I believe that that God defines, God created sexual intimacy in marriage for it to be a beautiful act, a a beautiful bonding of husband and wife. And, and, And Scripture doesn't state that Mary remained a virgin the rest of her life, although some believe that. The truth is, the Bible points out that Mary and Joseph later had children in a normal and natural way. And yet Joseph is patiently waiting for the birth of Jesus so that there is no doubt 
that this son came from the heavenly father, not from an earthly father. You see, I think in Joseph, we we learn a very important lesson. And that is to be less concerned about claiming our rights or being right and more concerned about doing right. See, in family relationships, it's easy to get our feelings hurt when we feel like we've been disrespected or dishonored in some way. And as long as we focus on our individual rights, always being right in the relationship, and how that if we've possibly been misunderstood or mistreated in the past, if we get focused on that, we'll never take the first step in possibly seeking reconciliation or rebuilding the relationship. In fact, oftentimes in relationships, when there's been some kind of conflict or there's been something said that you feel like you've been wronged and you've not been treated the way that you would like to be treated, it's easy for us to draw a a line in the sand and think, well, the other person's going to have to take the first step. Possibly you've been wronged in a relationship in your family. Now, no way am I recommending this weekend that you put yourself in harm's way or an unhealthy relationship. I I think there's great wisdom in having safe boundaries to those that have hurt you in the past. And yet, sometimes relationships can be at a standstill. And there's no attempt to seek reconciliation because both parties are focused on their rights and both parties are focused on being right. Maybe there would be some healing taking place if we would begin to ask ourselves, what's the right thing to do here? In my personal family relationships, as I think about conflicts that I have had, so many times the, the root of that strained relationship or broken relationship is that pride has entered in. And I hate to admit, but sometimes it's been my pride. And I've allowed my pride to get in the way of reconciliation. It's when I quit dwelling on my right and my honor, and I began to dwell on what's the right thing for me to do, to seek reconciliation, to seek healing. That's when things can start happening again. Yes, possibly that person disrespected me, and yet the better question is, what would be the right thing for me to begin to do toward them? It appears that Joseph was focused on doing the right thing. Now, let's look at what we can learn from the young mother Mary in the Christmas story. In Luke's gospel, he focuses on Mary, and after she learns that she will miraculously conceive and give birth to God's son, and then at the same time, her relative was also expecting a baby, Luke tells that Mary goes and visits her relative Elizabeth. Now, we learn that Elizabeth is is going to give birth to a baby late in her life after she thought that children weren't a possibility, and her son was going to be named John. We know him as John the Baptist. 
And you can read about this interchange in Luke chapter 1. It's listed in your message notes. We won't take time to read that this morning, but it's there for you to read. I love, let me just make this point. I love how God worked through this family. He used relatives, Mary and Elizabeth, to be key figures in this story. Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, who would prepare the way for Jesus. You see, I believe that that God created family and that God works through families as he did this one. And I believe that God wants to be at work in my family, and I believe that God wants to be at work in your family. It's so easy for us to simply go on autopilot it, uh, during the Christmas season and just go to family get-togethers and just chalk it off as another family get-together, another, another tradition observed. I want to urge you not to do that this year. I want to urge you as you make plans, make sure you pray that you're attentive to how God might show up in that family get-together. Be open to those nudges from God of how you might speak words of encouragement or speak words of truth to somebody in your family that needs to hear it. On the other extreme, I think there's some of us that maybe dread and fret over that next family get-together so much that we can become all stressed and, and maybe for some even become depressed. I want to urge you this Christmas season, instead of uh, giving in to that dread or even giving in to depression, I want to urge you to seek God's intervention, to begin to pray that that God will somehow show up in the midst of that family get-together, maybe even in in the midst of family drama, and that God will do something that's truly amazing. I want to urge you to begin praying that. In fact, let's not just pray it at Christmas time. Let's, let's resolve that as we look forward to 2019 that we'll just all be praying more intently for our families and we'll be more praying for God to be at work in our families. Now, following this interaction with Elizabeth, Mary writes a song of praise. It's called the Magnificat. She describes her response to God's plan for her life and for the baby in her womb. And let's just read a snippet, the first part of that, that wonderful song of praise. This is how Mary responded in verse 46. Oh, how my soul praises the Lord. How my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he took notice of his lowly servant girl. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. You know, a question that I asked myself once again this year as I read this story over and over again is, why did God choose Joseph? Why did God choose Mary? Out of all the people in Palestine, now I know they had to come from the, uh, from the lineage of David, and I understand all that to fulfill prophecy, but I know there had to be other young men and young women that would have fit that bill. I think Joseph, because he was a righteous man. Mary, because I think as we read this song of praise, that she was 
at the very heart of her being a servant. In her song of praise, she describes herself as a servant of God. I I love that. You see, instead of focusing on herself and the cost that might be involved in being the mother of Jesus, and yes, there was going to be some cost. Yes, the cost and and the pain of childbirth. But also, you think about it, fast forward, the cost of a probably a single mom later in life, having to let go of her son as he went on his mission and traveled throughout Israel as an itinerant preacher, her cost later to watch him be falsely accused and suffer at the hands of, of, of individuals who would treat him in a cruel and inhuman way. Think about the sacrifices and the pain that Mary would have to endure. But at this point, she's not focused on that. She's simply a humble servant who's happy to serve. Oh, for more Marys in this world who are willing to serve in the role that God calls them. Let's learn from Mary, a woman who was less concerned about her comfort and honor and was more concerned about serving others. As I shared this past weekend, I I had the opportunity to celebrate with my mom and our entire family and with 130 plus guests at her birthday party. It was an intimate affair, okay? But as we celebrated the basement of the church that she's been a part of for 60 some years, it was, it was a wonderful time. And we had the cake and the balloons and all that stuff. But I guess maybe it's because I'm the preacher. My sisters, they're older than me. They didn't ask me. They told me, you're going to be the ones saying something. And, and because I have older sisters, they even wrote out certain things they wanted me to say <laughs> and handed it to me. And I was obedient, Okay. But I, I knew that I was going to have that moment because they told me in advance. So I decided I wanted to write out a tribute to my mother. That's kind of dangerous to, to let a preacher start sharing at a birthday party. But I, I wanted to write a tribute to my mother because, you see, I, I don't want to be one of those people that waits till it's too late to say what's on your heart toward those you love. And so what I did is I, after getting up and thanking some people and thanking all the people that came for her party, I shared about how my mom had served for the years in the church that I grew up in, how that she and my dad visited the sick and the elderly, not because someone asked them to do, but just because they were servants. How she had started and hosted a small group Bible study in her home 40 years ago. And even though she's no longer able to lead it, that small group Bible study continues to meet every week, in a large part because of my mom's faithfulness. I have vivid memories growing up in in my mom and dad's home, how that, that my mom was always eager to serve and be a host to others. Uh, she would host, uh, my mom and dad would host visiting preachers as they would come through. And, 
and, and, and have them in our home, and she'd always fix a meal. She, she would uh, allow us as kids to invite our friends in and have huge parties, and, and, and she would be the one fixing the meals for them. I remember, I, I, I have this clear memory in my mind of, of a time where the extended family was there, all the uncles, aunts, cousins, all in this small three-bedroom house. We had tables and card tables set all over the house so that people could enjoy a meal. And I remember there was no room for my mom to sit down. And she was preparing the meal. She stood by the oven eating a plate because there wasn't a seat for her, but she was happy. She was just eager to serve. I shared with the audience that I had numerous times through the years written out verses from Proverbs 31 on birthday cards and Mother's Day cards honoring my mother. And if you don't know what Proverbs 31 says, I want to encourage you to go back and read it. It describes a noble, godly woman, how that godly woman is a servant at the core of her being. And I've shared that many times with my mother in cards, and every time I do, she always responded with, I've never thought about myself when I read that passage. And so I had the privilege to stand up in front of a group of people that all knew her, and I said, Mom, even though you've never thought of yourself in the reading of this passage, all the rest of us have. You see, a true servant isn't looking for their comfort and honor. In fact, they don't even give attention to how much they're serving. They just serve from the heart. So this Christmas season, as you and I spend time with our families, let's, let's pray and look for ways that we can truly serve others without calling attention to ourselves. You see, the more lasting impact will have is not through maybe a clever thing that we have to say or the clothes that we wear to that family gathering, but it's whether or not we show up as a humble servant looking to meet the needs of others. Another quote that I shared with my mom during my tribute is that she lived out the sentiments of the following words written by Maya Angelou when she wrote, I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did. But people will never forget how you made them feel. I think Mary made Jesus feel loved as he grew up because he, she was a servant. Finally, let's learn from the promised son, Jesus. As we fast forward years later, we see that Jesus didn't always have easy family relationships. Mark records in his gospel this scene from Jesus' ministry at a time when the schedule was hectic and the crowds were ever-growing. In Mark 3, verse 20, one time Jesus entered a house and the crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. One translation said, they even called him insane. Have you ever had a family member criticize you or ridicule you for a decision you've made in your life? You know, 
I'm seeking to learn from Jesus and take my cues from him on how to treat others. And when I read that this week, I asked myself, how did Jesus respond when his own family, his own half-brothers and half-sisters said he's out of his mind? I wonder if they ever said, I think Jesus has a Messiah complex. I just wonder if they ever said that. And I asked myself as I read this, how did Jesus respond? You know what? I couldn't find a response. I wonder if Jesus did what he often did when he was falsely accused or criticized. He just remained silent. Now, shortly after that, with answering some of the other critics, he said a kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. Similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. Sometimes families are splintered and end up feuding over careless words. And sometimes the best thing to protect and strengthen and even heal a family relationship is to simply keep our mouths shut. When they criticize or say that barb that gets under your skin, maybe the best thing, instead of trying to come up with a quick response, is just to remain quiet. Now, honestly, I struggle with that. Sometimes I speak before I think, and then later I regret it. So I'm trying with family, and especially those tense relationships, to just do less talking and more listening. And maybe your gatherings will go better if you do the same. So our last observation to take a lesson from Jesus is to be less concerned about judging or making a quick response and more concerned about forgiving. Now, that doesn't mean that in forgiveness, we always just immediately start trusting again. I understand that when you've been hurt, that sometimes you're not ready to really entrust yourself yet to that person. And and Jesus didn't even always trust the people around him. And yet he still had a heart longing to forgive. In fact, Jesus came to bring forgiveness. In John's gospel, he says this in John 12, if anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Yes, Jesus came not to judge, but to forgive. And I wonder if our relationships and family would do better if we would get out of the judge seat and start trying to get more actively involved in the forgiving seat. Jesus came not to judge, but to forgive. He came and lived a righteous life, not claiming his rights, but doing the right thing. He came as a servant, not concerned about his comfort and honor, and yet as a result, we give him great honor. One way that we can honor Jesus and never forget what he did for us is through weekly, regularly observing communion. We're going to, in just a moment, pass some trays that have pieces of bread and cups of juice. And as those trays are passed, we need to hear Jesus say, this is my body and this is my blood. 
And let's remember that Jesus lived in a family. It wasn't a perfect family. He had to deal with being misunderstood. He had to deal with people being said things about him that weren't true. But he came not to judge. He came to forgive. We need to take our cue from Jesus, the one who was born in a humble way, one that was, as a baby, just placed in a feeding trough on some hay, and the one that was willing to die in a humble way to meet our greatest need, the need of forgiveness. Let's pray together. Dear God, we thank you. We thank you for the timeless lessons we can learn from this great story, the Christmas story. We thank you for the characters in it. We thank you for for Joseph and his righteousness. We thank you for Mary and her servant heart. And we thank you for Jesus, who came not to this earth to judge us and to point a finger at us, but he came as a humble, righteous servant coming to provide forgiveness for us. Help us truly take our cues from Jesus and treat others the way that he treated the people around him, even his own family. But help us during this time of communion to be drawn to him, to be drawn to him in such a way that we just are filled with gratitude that the King of glory would come to this earth in a humble way and then be willing to die in a most humble way so that we could be forgiven and be right with you. Fill our hearts with that truth now as we observe this time of communion. It's in Jesus' name we pray.